0: Scripture reading for this morning's sermon is from the Gospel of John. Gospel according to John, chapter 1, and verse 1. This again is the Word of the Living God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. May God add add his blessing to the reading of his word.
1: Well, good morning, Calvary Grace. It is a great joy and and privilege to be able to preach the Word of God to you this morning. Now, this sermon uh, is actually the fruit of a winter session this past winter of the Sing, Say, Pray that Pastor Gavin uh, kicked off for us last last winter. Those were great times with the men digging into the Word, figuring out how to uh, teach the Word and even break it down. So some of you men will have heard uh, this sermon in sermonette form. I've expanded it out to a full sermon. Um and I trust that even if you've heard parts of it, you will still uh benefit as this is God's inspired word. Well, would you pray with me now as we ask for the Lord's help? Heavenly Father, as we behold your very inspired word, and even, Father, as we can behold the word made flesh, even in this written word, John's gospel, Father, I ask that by your spirit you would indeed open our eyes to behold uh, your son, the son who has made you known, the son who, who through, through whom we can see what you're like, So, Father, help us now. Attend us by your spirit. We want to see the glory of Christ. We want to know him and love him more. And we pray that you would do this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, picture, if you will, being in the Israelite camp in the wilderness after Yahweh has miraculously delivered you out of the bondage And slavery of Egypt you've been brought through the Red Sea miraculously and now you're in this arid barren wasteland and the Lord begins to speak to you through his servant Moses this is what Moses says the Lord said to Moses go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day why? For on the third day, the Lord, that's Yahweh, will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Exodus 19, 10, and 11. You are about to see Yahweh. You're about to see Yahweh. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him, in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. That's Exodus nineteen, sixteen to twenty-one. You see God, you die. You see God, you die. Later on in the Exodus. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Exodus 20, 18, and 19. So question then, what are you being shown at that point? Putting yourself in the Israelites' shoes. What are you being shown at that point? What are you seeing with your eyes? Didn't the Lord say that he was coming down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people? So what are you seeing? Well, you're seeing that the Lord, Yahweh, is unseeable. You're seeing that Yahweh is unseeable. You're seeing for yourself that you cannot see God. You're being made to see that you cannot see Him and live. That's what you're visibly seeing. This is exactly what the Lord told Moses later on when Moses actually asked to see the Lord's glory. in Exodus 33:18 to 20. Moses said, "Please show me your glory." And he said, that's the Lord, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Well, this is the first point of the sermon and that is, The unseeable God. The unseeable God. Look now at John 1. I'm really going to be zeroing in on uh, verse 18. However, this is the first 18 verses of John or the prologue of John, and it's really sort of a condensed form uh, of the whole gospel, really finding its climax, I would suggest, in verse 18. So we're going to be zeroing in on verse 18 while I sort of do a, a bit of a survey of the first 18 verses as well. But look now at verse 18. No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. You see, the Israelites, like us, they were fallen sinners. Fallen sinners cannot abide in God's presence. They were being made to see at that point at Mount Sinai that a mediator was needed in order for Yahweh, the Lord, to dwell in their presence. So the tabernacle will be built so that his special presence can dwell behind the curtain, in the Holy of Holies, on the mercy seat. There's all these barriers being set up between the Lord and his people. And yet the Lord will dwell amongst his people. But what becomes abundantly clear in the Exodus is that they could not see God's face and live. You'll recall that that account in Exodus 33 when Moses uh, asked to see the Lord's glory. What did the Lord do? Well, he passed before Moses in all his glory, and yet the Lord actually took him and put him in the cleft of the rock as he was passing by, and he removed his hand so that Moses could only see his backside. Even Moses did not see the Lord's face. Well, it's this reality that John, in our passage this morning, is communicating to us in this first section of verse 18. No one has ever seen God. God is unseeable because he is holy. Man, because he is sinful, cannot see God And live. And this is intuitively known when confronted by God's holiness, as we saw at Mount Sinai in the Exodus. After the tabernacle and a sacrificial system was instituted in ancient Israel, not only could a commoner never enter the Holy of Holies, even the high priest on the Day of Atonement would have to burn incense to obscure the ark so that he would not look upon the ark. Think about this. The, the high priest couldn't look upon the ark and live. You can read about that in Le- Leviticus 16.13, uh, if you're curious. So without a mediator between God and man, what, what, what is it like? I was trying to think of an illustration. Well, coming too close to God without a mediator in his white-hot holiness is like a moth coming too close to a bonfire, what happens? You get incinerated. You get incinerated. So you might be thinking that at this point, well, this all seems a little harsh. Maybe if you're, if you're not a Christian here today, you might be thinking, this doesn't sound very loving. I thought God is loving. It doesn't sound very tolerant or inclusive. Those are some buzzwords today. Well, if that's the case, it's fundamental when we, when we speak of God's holiness and we speak of God's wrath, it's fundamental to recognize that God's wrath against sinners is a good and righteous response to evil. That's what God's wrath is. Don't think of human wrath flying off the handle, temper tantrum, losing your mind. God's wrath against sinners is the right And good and loving response to evil. Romans 12 verse 9 commands us to hate what is evil and cling to what is good and this command is patterned after God and his character. This is what God does. If God were indifferent to evil, if God turned a blind eye to evil, if God swept evil under the rug and just said okay let's just put this over here, God Himself would be evil. But this is not true. God hates what is evil. And we all, outside of God's grace, are evil. So I say it again God's wrath against sinners is the good and right and loving response to evil. Therefore, no one has ever seen God, because he is holy, and on our own, outside of his grace, we are not. He is the unseeable God. However, this verse goes on. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Now, I want to stop there. This is my second point the unseeable god times 2 question mark if you see it in the bulletin there what is john saying here are there two gods well first we're told the only god who is at the father's side so john here in the last verse of his prologue to his gospel has been very careful up to this point to establish that there is only one god there's only one god What was crystal clear in the Israelite mind? Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. There is only one God. He is the unique God. He's the creator God. He is the covenant-keeping God. And he is one. So is this one who is at the Father's side another God? Well, no. He is the only God. You can see it there. The only God who is at the Father's side. This is the same truth that was introduced to us at the very start of the Gospel. Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So is the Word a second God? No, the Word was with God, and the Word is God. That is the Word, which is God's special revelation to humanity. In the flesh is God. So here in our text this morning, however, he goes further and introduces us to the fact that the Word is the Son. He is the only God who is at the Father's side. A more uh, literal translation here is actually the only God who is in the Father's bosom. The only God who is in the Father's bosom. So they, there's, there's a clear um, sort of description of intimacy here that I don't want us to miss. This is a Hebrew idiom that highlights a loving and intimate relationship between father and son. It's not a cold, hard, distant relationship. It's an intimate relationship in the father of the bosom. The son is in the father. It, it, sorry, in the bosom of the father. So we could put it like this then. The only God who is the Son is in the only God's, the Father's, bosom. Now at this point, your head might be spinning a little bit. You might be saying, well, why is this, is this really that important? This just seems confusing when you start start to think about our triune God. Let's just think about this for a sec. This is a very important thought exercise. The Bible tells us that God is love, 1 John 4:16. Now, question, can we say that God is love because God loves the world? Can we say that God is love because God loves the world, like we see in John 3:16? Well, in part we can. But if we say that God is love only because he loves the world, then what was God before He created the world? See where I'm going here? He couldn't have been love because he had nothing to love. More than that, if God started to love after he created his creation in order to have something to love, he necessarily had to learn how to love. He didn't know how to love before. He had to learn how to love after he created. In that case, God is not all-knowing. He has to learn. He has to progress. See what I'm saying? Moreover, God, we know, is immutable. That's a big word that means he does not change. God does not change, he's immutable. If he became love after he created, and had something to love, he has necessarily changed. Well, if all this is true, God used to then be, we are ha- we forced to conclude that God used to be a lonely, needy, solitary God who needed to create in order to be fulfilled and in order to have something to love. What this means then is the very essence of his being had to change from being a loveless Solitary, lonely, needy God, to a God who is now apparently happy and satisfied and fulfilled and content because of us, because of his creation. In that case, God would be reliant upon his creation to be who he claims to be. You tracking? This is simply not true. We're going to flip to John 17 here. Flip to John 17. Pastor Gavin just took us through an excellent uh, mini-series on the high priestly prayer. I want to zero in on a couple verses here. In John 17, just consider this. John 17, verse 5. This is Jesus praying to the Father. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before when? Before the world existed. Before the world existed. See, brothers and sisters, God is love because in his triune nature, the Father and the Son have had perfect love with one another in the Spirit in eternity. So, God then is not a needy, lonely, solitary God who decided that he needed to create in order to have something to love, in order to become love. He is love in the very essence of his being. He is love. So, why did he create? Well, he created in order to bring his people into that perfect love and fellowship. Look at verse 24 of John 17. Verse 24. What is the desire of the Son? Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. Why? Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. You loved me before the foundation of the world. Well, friends, this is why the Bible says God is love. Perfect fellowship perfect communion perfect fulfillment perfect satisfaction in the triune godhead in eternity past what this means then is the only god the triune god is not the god of the 4th century arians or the modern day jehovah's witnesses maybe you've had a jw knock on your door you've engaged in conversation with them what do they believe well they believe that god created the son and thus became a father. He wasn't a father before, but now he is a father, and the Son was created. What does this mean then? Well, according to the JWs, God is not Father, Son, and Spirit eternally. Neither is the one true God the God of the third century modalists, or the modern-day one as Pentecostals. He's not the God who used to put on the Father mask, right? And then in redemptive history, as Christ walked the earth, he puts on the Son mask. And now since the Son has ascended to the Father, somehow he's put on the Spirit mask, right? This is what one as Pentecostals or the modalists believed. It's the one person manifesting himself in different forms at different times in history. Neither is the one true God the solitary, needy, demanding, and unpredictable God of the Muslims. See, in the Godhead, our triune God, long before he created the world, was infinitely fulfilled, infinitely pleased, infinitely satisfied, infinitely happy within the three persons of the Trinity. He did not create in order to be fulfilled. Rather, He is an overflowing fountain of love. Do you think of God like this? He's overflowing, and he creates in order for his creatures to be brought up into that fellowship, even the fellowship of the triune God. So listen to this verse from Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him. So that's the Father chose us in him, that's in the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So do you see that? God planned the sal- salvation of his people before the foundation of the world. We could see that very clearly in Ephesians 1. But note two, you can often miss this with this passage. The eternal relations of the Godhead are in view in Ephesians 1. The Father and the Son, we're planning that. So you can see then, I hope, that Trinitarian theology is fundamental to biblical Christianity. It's fundamental to biblical Christianity, and it flows from the pages of Scripture like a spring comes gushing out of the side of a mountain. It just happens. You You can see it. It's right there. More than that, if you lose the Trinity then, you lose God. You lose the Trinity, you lose God. When you look at the ancient creeds and confessions, there's a reason why they're actually so important. Because in the face of anti-Trinitarian heresy, they are setting the boundary markers for an orthodox and biblical Christianity. You reject the Trinity, you reject God. Now, before we move on to the third point, there is one translational challenge here that I I need to deal with. I'm going to touch on it briefly. If you have questions about it, definitely feel free to chat with me after. If you're familiar with the King James Version here of this verse, you're going to be familiar with this translation. So this is the King James. It says, No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. You may be familiar with that. So this begs the question, of course, what translation is more accurate here? On the one hand, you've got the only God. On the other hand, you've got the only begotten Son. Well, two things I would just note briefly. First, the older manuscripts within the New Testament manuscript tradition actually favor the word God rather than Son. If that's confusing to you, I'm speaking manuscript tradition, talk to someone who knows one of the elders, one of the pastors here. But the older manuscript tradition within the New Testament manuscript tradition, this family of manuscripts that we have. It favors the word God rather than sons. The King James has chosen to take the word son. But the older manuscripts take the word God. Second, And probably more challenging are the translational options that come with this word, monogonase. Monogonase. So on the one hand, this word, with this word, the emphasis could be on the begottenness of the Son. That is the eternal generation of the Son. I know this is big lingo, but it's important. On the other hand, the emphasis could be on the class or status of the Son as God. Now it's important to recognize that both of these are true. That is, the Son is begotten of the Father that is eternally begotten, not made. Our brother Jeff just read from the Apostles' Creed that uses that language. The Son is eternally begotten, not made. It's a very important doctrine of eternal generation. So that's true on the one hand. The Father gives life to the Son from eternity and the Son has no beginning. On the other hand, the Son is also uniquely God. And you can see both of these truths in the scriptures, explicit in the New Testament. That is, He is the only God. Both of these are true. So the translational debate then has to do with this particular word, monogamous, and what it seems to be emphasizing based upon the context of the passage. So there are good and solid theologians, I would mention, that are on both sides of this debate. Feel free to disagree with me. I've taken the ESV translation here as the right one. But I just want to emphasize, for our purposes here this morning, it's important to note that either translational option still communicates the eternality of the Son, right? His eternal begottenness on the one hand. And the fact that the Son is the one unique God. Both translational options will communicate that. I think the ESV is right and the ESV translation actually more more clearly communicates that Jesus is God, which I think is what John is really emphasizing here. So what about the unseeable God then? Well, this takes us to point number three. The unseeable God made known. The unseeable God made known. Or sort of in a clunky uh, way, I could say, the unseeable God made seeable. The unseeable God made seeable. Look at verse 18 again of John chapter 1. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So you can see those important pronouns there. He, that's the Son, has made him That's the Father known. So in Jesus Christ, the one true, unseeable God has been made seeable. He's been made seeable. The Greek verb here is exegesata from exegetami. What does that sound like? Well, that's where we get our English verb exegesis from. So we could say that the Son has exegeted the Father. The Son has exegeted the Father. The Son has unpacked him, explained him, revealed him. The Son has made him known. So what does this mean very practically then? And this is is beautifully precious and simple. I love it. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Trying to figure out what God is like is not, it's not this crazy intellectual abstract exercise. (laughs) God has not revealed himself to us in that way. He's revealed himself to us in his son. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know God's heart? Look at Jesus. You've got doubts about God's love in this cold and hard world. Look at Jesus. You want others to know God. This is key, too, for our evangelism, our apologetic. Tell them to look at Jesus. You want to better understand the Trinity. Look at Jesus in his interactions with the Father by the Spirit. It's all right there in his word. See, in the incarnation of the sun, God has accommodated himself to our capacities. God loves to reveal himself to his creatures. He's condescended down to our level and made himself, uh, himself accessible to our senses so that we can know him truly. So now, when we look at the sun, we see God. When we look at the sun, We see God. You'll you'll recall perhaps what Jesus told Philip in John 14. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? See, when you look at Jesus... You see God. It's interesting to note here that this passage does not say the only God who is at the creator's side. It doesn't say the only God who is at the judge's side. Or the only God who is at the king's side. Right? Even though that would all be true. That would all be true. God is creator, king, and judge. But fundamentally, In the very essence of his being, he is Father, Son, and Spirit. This revelation goes both ways as well. Not only does the Father send the Son, but by his being the Son, the Son reveals the reality of the Father. You see that? No Father, no Son. No Son, no Father. This is who he is. He has made him known. But there's more to see here, and this is very important. John, here in his prologue, as he sets the scene for the rest of his gospel, he's reminding us of Sinai. That's what he's doing. He's bringing us back to Sinai, and he's saying, Now you can see God and live. Now you can see God and live. You remember the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament. God's special presence dwelt there in behind all of the barriers and all of the layers because, of course, man could not see God and live. Look at verse 14 of chapter 1 here. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, many of you, you will be familiar with the fact that a more literal rendering of this verse is actually the word became flesh and what? Tabernacled or tented amongst us. He's, John's bringing us back to Sinai. But he's saying, now you can see him. You can see God and live. So the temple curtain has been torn. The layers have been peeled back we can gaze into the holy of holies as it were and see god in the flesh remember what john said in his prologue in his first epistle first john very similar that was just from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes and we we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. (coughs) You see Jesus, you see God. So this, of course, begs the question, what is God like? What is God like? Well, as we've seen, he's triune. What was implicit in various places in the Old Testament has been made explicit in the New Testament. It's very clear. God is triune. But more than that, and I want to sort of camp out here for a little bit, God is full of grace and truth. God is full of grace and truth. You want to ask the question, what is God like? He's full of grace and truth. Look again at the rest of verse 14. So we've seen glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is, he is superabounding, spilling over, overflowing like a never-ending fountain, never exhausted, full, superabundant, grace upon grace. Look at verse 16. It's the same language. For from his fullness, notice that, not from his neediness, not from his emptiness, not not from his loneliness, (laughs) right? Right? From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So you see that language again. It's this overflowing superabundance that is within God, the triune being. So at Mount Sinai, we saw that God is unseeable. So let's think about this a little bit. What was Sinai all about? Well, that's where God gave his law, that's where God gave his law to the Israelites. His holy and good and righteous and just standard. But for fallen sinners, we find out throughout the pages of Scripture, the law condemns. The law condemns. We are made to see that we are under God's righteous judgment because we are sinners. We are made to see throughout the Old Testament history that we need a Savior. We need a Savior. Look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, there's an important thing I want to note here. I don't want want anyone here to misunderstand this. Something of God's grace was known in the Old Testament, to be sure. Right? There was atonement for sin. There was fellowship with the covenant-keeping God. And yet, it was a shadowy, way that god revealed his grace it left much to be desired but i want to highlight i want to emphasize god the god of the old testament is the same god of the new testament our god doesn't change in the new testament he is more fully revealed he's revealed to our senses he's revealed to our capacities in an accessible way so as, as John sets the scene then for the rest of his gospel, he's reminding us of Sinai and saying now you can see God and live. However, even more than that, John is actually saying you must see God to live. You must see God to live. What do I mean by that? Well, you must see the Son to live. You see, grace only comes through Christ. Christ. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God is a gracious God because he's a saving God. Do you know that God loves to save sinners? (laughs) He saved me. I'm a sinner. If you're a Christian here today, you're a sinner. And yet God saved you. God loves to save sinners. This is what we mean when we say that God is a gracious God because he is a saving God. And he saves by sending his own beloved son to die in the place of sinners. What does John say later on? Behold, when he sees Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right? Or later on, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16 John 3.16 So remember, you'll recall earlier I said God's wrath against sinners is the good and righteous and loving response to evil. So God looks into the human heart and he sees that the inclinations and thoughts of the human heart are only evil and wicked continually. God is provoked to righteous indignation in the face of our rebellion and sin. He is holy and yet he's also kind and gracious. In sending his son, the son on the cross took the place of sinners. So God, the Father, looked upon his son as if his son had all the filthy wickedness of you and I. And Jesus upon the cross absorbed and exhausted all of God's righteous wrath against sinners. That's what's taking place there. Jesus is stepping into the place of sinners. He was resurrected three days later so that now the father can look upon the believer with favor and pleasure rather than with righteous anger and by this through his son the father displays his amazing grace it's the gospel when you look at jesus you see god and when you look at jesus on the cross you most clearly see god so john is telling us now not only You can now see God and live. He's saying you must see God to live. You must see God to live. So I have to ask then, have you looked to the sun? Have you looked to the sun? If you haven't looked to the sun, you're still outside of God's grace. You're still under God's wrath. He's still provoked a righteous indignation towards you because of your sin. You need to look to the sun to live. So, God is a God that is full of grace, but He's also full of truth. He's full of grace and truth. In our fallen state, we are tragically and hopelessly lost. That's the tragic state of humanity. Why are we lost? Well, I would say fundamentally and primarily, we are lost because we believe lies. We believe lies about ourselves. We think that we're not that bad, right? We believe lies about God. We think he's not that good. So if God is a God full of grace and truth, what does this mean? Well, I want to illustrate this just by looking at um, just a little excerpt from Christopher Hitchens, and I think it highlights largely what fallen humanity thinks of God. I think naturally we think that God is not good. We think that he's holding out on us. Think about the Garden of Eden. We believe that God is not gracious and not true. And we might even naturally think that he's an evil cosmic dictator. Certainly this is what Hitchens thought. This is just a quote from, his, from him in his book, God is Not Great. The late atheist Christopher Hitchens. Quote, I think it would be rather awful if it was true. If there was a permanent, total, round-the-clock, divine supervision and invigilation of everything you did, you would never have a waking or sleeping moment when you weren't being watched and controlled and supervised by some celestial entity from the moment of your conception to the moment of your death. It would be like living in North Korea." So, what does the quote reveal? Well, it reveals wrong and twisted thoughts about who God is, right? That's what it does, about the character of God. So, for Hitchens, he's connecting dots, right? He knows something of the attributes of God. He knows that if God is all-seeing and all-knowing, well, necessarily, he must be an evil dictator, right? What does this reveal? Well, it reveals that in our fallen state, we believe lies about God. And it's into this lost and miserable state that God sends the piercing piercing light of his Son into the darkness and deception and despair. Look at verse 4 of chapter 1. Speaking of Christ, John 1 verse 4, "...in him was life, and the life was the light of men." The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Look at verse 9 as well. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So when all of our fallen faculties are telling us otherwise, God is bad, God is evil, he's out to get me, God sends his son into the darkness so that we see the truth of who God is remember 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God where? In the face of Jesus Christ. In the face of Jesus Christ. So God is loving. God is kind. God is good. God is faithful. God can be trusted. Jesus did what he said he would do. He did go to the cross and conquer sin and death and the grave. His word was true. He did rise from the dead. He did send his spirit into the hearts of his people to counsel us, to to comfort us, to lead us and guide us. He is coming back again to bring us home. God is a God of grace and truth. And we see that when we see the unseeable God made known through his beloved son, Jesus Christ. Well, by way of application, then, I've got three points I want to make. First, I hope you can see Trinitarian theology is fundamental to biblical Christianity. You reject the Trinity, you reject God. When you look at any other religion, what what I would call natural religion, that's what the theologians call it, natural religion, that is all other religions outside of Christianity, natural religion always creates small g gods in the image and likeness of us. How, how do we know that? Well, some of them are needy, right? Some of them are, no, are lonely. They're all solitary. They, they all need to create in order to somehow have a need met or fulfilled. <laughs> That's not the true God. Those are small g gods of our own creations. They all need us to come through for them. Well, friends, no one conceived of the triune God. Human beings do not think up gods like the eternal triune God. God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit, and we stand back and behold in wonder and amazement, and we worship him for who he is. He is the fountain of all that is good and true and beautiful, he's the source. Second, how should this reality affect your Christian witness and apologetic? I touched on this a little bit before. So what do I mean by that? When you you talk about God to non-Christians, how do you go about doing that? I would suggest in our day, maybe in our circles, there can be a great temptation to look intellectually sophisticated and smart. There's a great temptation to that. I would suggest to you that you show your unbelieving friends and family Jesus. Get them to read a gospel. There's a whole lot of stuff that passes as Christian apologetics out there today. If you're familiar with something like the ontological argument, right? I think that stuff is just confusing, (laughs) to be honest. If you don't know what that is, that's fine, because I don't think you're missing out very much let me just remind you brothers and sisters it is not your job as a believer to defend generic theism that it is not your job to defend the plausibility of the possibility of maybe there being some type of generic god (laughs) in the universe that's not christian uh, apologetics we love jesus We want people to see Jesus. Tell them about Jesus. You see Jesus. You see God. Get them to see Christ. Ask the Holy Spirit to open their eyes to see Christ. A third and last, God was happy without you. God was happy without you. Now I say that purposefully in sort of a provocative way (laughs) but i think it's very important god did not have a u-shaped hole in his heart he did not have that now you might say well that sounds a little harsh that doesn't sound very kind or loving if you think about it i hope you can see actually it's not it's actually very good news that god was happy without you and without me i'm speaking of in eternity past let me just ask you, how many human relationships, right, how many of our relationships are defined by relationships where we all are needy and clingy and lonely and dependent, right, despairing, manipulative? That, that, that's all of us to, to varying degrees, is it not? Well, friends, God is not like that. The false gods are like that that are created in our fallen image. God is not like that. The one true God is the one who has enjoyed infinite pleasure and joy and satisfaction between the Father and Son and Spirit in eternity past. So get this then. Rather than getting into God's good books for coming through for Him, by coming through for Him, He has come through for you. Think about that. He has come through for you out of his abundance, through his son. He has done it so that you too can be brought into that happy fellowship and enjoy him forever. So we can say that God was happy without you, but he delights to bring you into his fellowship, into his family, into his fullness, Look at verses 11 and 12, John 1. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Think about that. By seeing and believing in Jesus, you are a child of God. You're a child of God. Does that describe you here this morning? Can you say that with confidence? You, you have been brought up into the fellowship of the triune God, into the, into the abundance of his fullness and joy. If so, rejoice in your Father's steadfast love. If that, if that describes you here this morning. Rejoice in your Father's steadfast love as you look to the Son by the power of the Spirit. If not, if you're not a Christian here today, again, I would just plead with you this morning... You need to look to the Son to live. You need to look to the Son to live. You must. Otherwise, you will perish. So turn from your sins to him, and you will be brought into his family. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray. Father God, as we are confronted by your word, we know that this is not the creation of man. Father, our finite fallen faculties do not um, dream this stuff up. You are the one true, triune, living, superabundant, happy God. And Father, we praise you that you have revealed yourself to us so clearly through your Son, so that now when we see your Son in the Gospels, in your Word, we behold your glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So help us to look to Christ today with the eyes of faith, even by your Spirit, and live. For we pray these things in his name. Amen.